Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about the relationship between preaching and gender, specifically from our different cultural contexts and ecclesial contexts. And joining me today to do that, we have Grace Sengalang Ng, who is a PhD student in educational studies at Biola University. How's it going, Grace? It's going well, John. Thanks for having me. And we have Dr. Chris Porter, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Trinity College, Melbourne. How's it going, Chris? Yeah, going well. Thanks, man. And we have Reverend Daniel Parham, who is Assistant Director of Undergraduate Retention and Success at Biola University and an elder at Gospel Memorial Church of God in Christ in Long Beach, California. How's it going, Daniel? Going well, John. So I'm curious to know what the gender diversity of those involved in the preaching ministry at your churches was like. For me, growing up, it's always a bit weird because I. I, my father was a, was a minister until he lost his hearing. Uh, so he uh, had an early onset deafness. And so he ended up moving into a secular role, but we ended up moving around different churches and locuming a lot uh, as he would fill in for different uh, ministers and, and different preachers while they were on holidays. And so we, we would commonly go to a church for three to five months, um, a little bit beforehand to, for dad to be able to get to know the congregation and then uh, be able to lean into that congregation while that minister was on holidays for a while and then um, sort of move on to another church. That was, that was my dad's ministry while I was growing up. And so while my dad, you know, obviously being male, he was predominantly a, a male preacher. Uh, but the majority of those churches, I mean, th- this is Australia in the, in the 80s and 90s, had pretty much overwhelmingly white male preaching staff. And the, the, the women and the females uh, in the preaching roles or, or speaking roles tended to be there in order to serve uh, very specific ministries in terms of working with kids, uh, working with youth, or working with, in women's ministries. And so it was very much a, a strong gender divide uh, in those. Uh, when I was a teenager, though, we uh, had a family come to the church that, I, that we'd sort of settled out uh, for my teen years. And he was the assistant minister, but the wife actually did a lot of the preaching. She spent a lot of time doing that preaching role uh, in that church and not just with youth and kids, but in general, broadly than just the narrow frame. But then, you know, from then on with the Australian church context, especially as I moved more in towards Anglican circles, it was very much a, a male and very much a complementarian leadership model. And so 99% of the time it would be a, a a male speaking up the front, and that women were there to lead prayer uh, and possibly service lead, but uh, almost never to preach. And it was really only when I moved to Melbourne and that that really started being challenged a lot more. Uh, theologically, I'd, I'd probably sort of start thinking about a lot earlier than that, but in practice, I didn't really see it until then. So the Anglican scene in Sydney versus Melbourne pretty much divides along kind of complementarian egalitarian lines. Yeah, so so I, I didn't actually grow up in Sydney. I grew up in Canberra, and then I moved to Adelaide as as a young adult. But the the church scene, especially the Anglican scene in Australia, is heavily influenced by Sydney. Sydney Anglicanism is a commonly big S, big A. It's it's often known as, almost as a denomination in and of itself uh, here in Australia, and, and indeed uh, throughout the world. I mean, in Gafcon circles, Sydney Anglicanism is a is a big part of the Gafcon movement. But it is heavily complementarian, and to be any form of egalitarian within that 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 structure is is to be an anathema in many ways. As as much as it pains me to say it, but it is 
it is quite strongly pushed back on. And, and this actually causes a lot of issues uh, between Sydney Anglicans and uh, Anglicans around the rest of the world. Uh, as Anglicanism is, much, is a very broad church, it is very much more of a diverse movement. Uh, and so in, here in Melbourne, Melbourne has traditionally been the Melbourne-Sydney uh, debate or the Melbourne-Sydney uh, cultural divide uh, is very much you know, similar to New York, Los Angeles. East Coast, West Coast, US context. Uh, and so one of the things that does set things apart here in Melbourne is that it is more egalitarian than in Sydney. Yeah, so I grew up in kind of a mix of different conservative evangelical churches. I grew up in mainly Filipino conservative congregational church, but they acted more like a Baptist church. And yeah, I would call them more like wild complementarian. So it was like almost like fundamental, very, very conservative. So that was my upbringing. And then in grad school, I went to a liturgical Baptist church, which was still mostly male leaders and preachers. I saw a few more like females actually like in the service, like conducting the liturgies. And so I saw like more female presence at least like on stage compared to the church I grew up in. And then I joined my husband's church and he was pastoring at the time at a Korean Christian Missionary Alliance church, which actually acted more like a Presbyterian church. So all the churches I've been in have kind of been confused in like their title versus what they actually practiced. And that was also um, pretty conservative, all male pastors and male elders and deacons, but there were female deaconesses and there were female pastors, mostly in the like education side doing like children's ministry. And in my current church, it's a Evangelical Free Church of America, and it is still a pretty conservative church. Yeah, mostly male leadership and male elders as well. They will have females preach maybe like once in a while to guest speak. And that's often like more testimony based. So yeah, I haven't really had very many models of like regular female preaching um, at the churches I've been in. Yeah, since they they range mostly from wild complementarian to mild complementarian, but all under the complementarian umbrella. So yeah, that's been my experience with gender diversity in preaching. Not very much in my experience. I, I really like that range of complementarianism that you come up that you formulated there for us, Grace, from wild to mild. I, I'd even say at, at an extra level, which is in some of the churches I grew up at, was even unconsidered. I don't know if a rhyming slang for wild, mild, something else that's unconsidered. But um, you know, you had people who 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 read passages like one Timothy and, and and go, well, obviously it says here women can't can't speak in church, so therefore dot. Uh, it's not even it's not even a particularly considered position. It's just a presumed position. I think it's a, it's a helpful rubric to be thinking about. Yeah. And I would have to yeah give credit to that phrasing to Ben Shin. I took his pastoral epistles course and he was actually the one who, yeah, talked about like moving from wild to mild complementarian. Yeah. So that, that's not something I came up with. <laughs> I'm a product of the modern Pentecostal movement. Some would say the historic Pentecostal movement, the Zusa Street Revival in North America. Uh, my denomination was birthed out of the Zusa Street Revival, the Church of God in Christ, which is one of the historical Pentecostal denominations. When you think of Pentecostalism, 
in North America, you, you think of Church of God in Christ, Church of God, Assemblies of God, which, uh, by the way, was birthed out of the Church of God in Christ due to racial challenges and, and a number of kind of sects of, of Pentecostalism. But those are those are kind of the main staple denominations, uh, particularly in the Pentecostal movement in North America. The Church of God in Christ, where, I, where I've been basically my, my entire life as a Christian, uh, is more the historic African-American Pentecostal uh, tradition. And I give those layers because as, as I give language to, to some of the elements of, of kind of my upbringing, I think there's, a, there's an ethnic racial context to it. So even how I would describe us being conservative theologically, I think would look very different for conservatism in any white conservative church space. So for us, I think as, as African-American conservative tradition, theologically, we, we are very conservative, but uh, I think socially, we, we tend to be distinguishing from, from con- our conservative white brothers and sisters. Uh, and then also, uh, we probably lean more egalitarian, though I would not say they were fully egalitarian in the context in terms of gender. So growing up in, in my church environment, it was not uncommon to know women preachers. Uh, actually, in our denomination, we formally license women uh, in ministry. Uh, we don't formally ordain. So they, this is where the distinguisher is. We, we have women in our denomination that are licensed missionaries, licensed evangelists, and with that have full license to preach. Uh, in any given context, up into the point of the pastorate. Uh, so uh, women are not formally ordained to, to be pastors in our denomination, though we do have some women who uh, pastor in our denomination. And this is where I think the racial cultural context comes into play, because in our sphere of uh, pastoral leadership, we tend to see the pastor and his spouse uh, as one ministry unit and one ministry lead. And when, um, when many of those pastors passed away, their wives would uh, assume that role in, in moments of, of leadership. And we would formally oblige, right, and, and, and give, give credence to that person to lead in that space. And so that's a little bit of the caveat, uh, I think, when it comes to the pastorate, uh, that we actually have seen women preach and lead a church. But growing up, and even until this point, there's been a strong empowerment and emphasis of women in preaching. Denominationally, in terms of our polity, we have a, a whole sector of women's ministry. We call it the, the Department of Women, who actually has, a, uh, actually has a head lead, the general supervisor of women, almost equivalent to the senior lead, but on the, the female side of our denomination. We have a whole reporting structure in that space a whole ecclesiological structure too. Um, So there is this ecclesiology in terms of women preaching and licensing, and then also just at a functional level, I saw that a lot. So you would see traveling evangelists, um, you would see traveling missionaries, very much affirmed in the local church context, celebrated. But you would see a variance of how those women would preach um, because we were still uh, predominantly male-centric in, in our preaching, um, that sometimes you would see kind of the embodiment and expression of that preaching in what we would say are stereotypical masculine ways, because that was the model predominantly uh, in the church. So that's a little bit of, I think, of, of my context. I, I, I had never envisioned 
until I was in more conservative white evangelical spaces that women preachers was not maybe normative in other spaces because I had, had seen it. Yeah, I think that racial and cultural component to this conversation is super interesting for us to reflect on. You know, Chris had mentioned a moment ago this idea of the kind of unconsidered complementarian. There's kind of this um, sort of hermeneutical solipsism, if I can say that, this idea where it's like, you know, the Bible's clear on this subject, et cetera, right? And yet not taking a step back to wonder what sort of cultural dynamics are at play that sort of provoke those sorts of readings of the text, what sort of systems are, are pushing us in, this, in these different directions. And it's interesting just hearing you all reflect on this. So I come from a Baptist background. I grew up uh, in Las Vegas in a fundamentalist Baptist context, as you do. And in that context, which was quite separatist, you know, what I grew up thinking what it meant to be Baptist was all sorts of things like being King James only, being complementarian, being dispensational, being Arminian, these sorts of things I wouldn't have been able to have named, but I associated those things strongly with, in terms of the concepts, with a kind of Baptist identity. And now I teach at a, a Baptist seminary. And what's interesting about this seminary is that it's part of a Swedish Baptist tradition that because they were immigrants and they primarily spoke or only spoke Swedish in certain contexts, it was kind of like they were insulated from a lot of the other culture wars that Baptists were fighting in the South, the whole fundamentalist modernist controversy and these other things. In many ways, the Swedish Baptist tradition, formerly known as Baptist General Conference and now converged worldwide, didn't have to fight a lot of those same battles. And one of those, I think, was this complementarian egalitarian debate. And so what's interesting about the Baptist seminary that I'm at, it's very normal to have egalitarians and to have women pastors. Whereas growing up, I would have never thought that that was at all Baptist. And so it's just interesting to, uh, of course, see what Baptist distinctives truly are. Um, you know, it's, it's actually quite limited in terms of a particular perspective on the sacraments, as well as kind of local church autonomy, which actually opens up for quite a bit of ecumenicism, if you think about it, if, if, it's, if you're sort of open to a lot of theological diversity in terms of what it means to be a Baptist. There's, there's quite a bit of breadth there, potentially. And egalitarianism is one of those in the denomination that I'm a, a part of now. So, for example, uh, my pastor at my local church here within the denomination where I'm a member and where I'm also on the leadership team, the pastor at my church is a woman. And so it's just interesting to have a, a Baptist church that is fully Baptist and part of Baptist denomination from the context from which I grew up, because it was strictly complementary. We would have never have had a woman preaching in any sort of situation. And so I, I do think the, the cultural dynamics to all of this is, is really interesting to reflect on. Yeah. And I think the cultural dynamics of this are often obscured by the theological argumentation around it. So when I was growing up, the women that you did get to come in and, and talk, they weren't preaching, they were talk, and I'm using scare quotes here because uh, it's definitively not preaching, were generally people who were women who were missionaries overseas, had wonderful ministries in other locations, and generally in the 
you know, the third world again, scare quotes, because I think there, I think there was seemed to be an implicit hierarchy where you had whiteness versus anything that wasn't white, white versus non-white and male versus female. And the hierarchy of order, I guess, meant that a, a woman could minister in a um, non-white context in a way that they couldn't minister in a white context. And I, I always found this a, a bit weird because, and, and this comes back to, to my own upbringing as a Asian in a white family, I'm adopted. And so I end up in this sort of mid place between people read my name and go, oh yeah, you know, I'm expecting a white person, but they see me and they go, oh, you're not white. And so where do you fit? And so I always, I remember thinking about this a lot when I, when I was a teenager, going, how does this actually work? And yeah, it was one of those sort of eye-opening moments that I realized that actually there's a secondary hierarchy, a cultural hierarchy here as well at play. That is fascinating thinking about all the various cultural hierarchies in play. Because I was actually thinking um, before you had mentioned the different cultural hierarchies between maybe like white and global and like male and female, I was thinking, um, well, like in East Asian culture, um, which is like more influenced by Confucianism, there is that hierarchy in play and typically males are really regarded over females. And so I see how that does influence the churches as well, how you do see that um, like more male dominated hierarchy in the churches and women are more in the service roles like serving in the kitchen, you know, cooking the food for the fellowship, like that's kind of the roles that they're relegated to towards. So it's interesting even adding that other component, Chris, that you had mentioned, thinking about how like white culture actually becomes higher in that hierarchy over like other global cultures and how that also affects gender differences as well. Right. So then in, in that way of reckoning, it's like their interpretation of First Timothy 2 is not, I do not permit a woman to teach to a man, but I do not permit a woman to teach a white man. Which I think says something really interesting and probably something we don't have a time to explore here. But what's the difference but in, in that framework? What, where does whiteness supersede uh, maleness or maleness supersede whiteness? What's the interaction there? Maybe that's something we can explore in the future. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. I think to what you said, Chris and Grace, yeah, there's this convergence of maleness or patriarchy and and then also the racial cultural element coming into play too. I think even I think about an African American tradition particularly, in, in some ways there might be patriarchy in in the element of the church, but in the context of family life, there's very much a a matriarchy. Like black women are deeply respected, held and seen as strength in positions in families, particularly, I think, post-desegregation in America. And so that convergence happens in the church, where I, I think a, a little, little contrasting to what Grace was mentioning about her own experience, it's a both and. Like, you would see women in service roles, but it wasn't necessarily, I think, viewed as a secondhand role. But also there was this promotion of being called to preach, being anointed to preach, being anointed to teach, and primarily in the service of women, but not exclusive to the service of women. And so we would see, see this kind of 
this swirl of, I think, experiences um, where it was hard to categorize, like, women are only to teach women. I don't think I grew up with that, that, that kind of delineation. I knew that there was a, like a primary space that was afforded to women. And I think in, in, this, in the context of ministry of, of ministering to other women, but it wasn't exclusive to that. And so that, that experience, I think, really tied into Black culture viewing, viewing women, I think, culturally as a position of strength and stability and wisdom. Even so much so that I think in my tradition, many of our, our, our churches have mother's boards, faithful, older women who provide sound wisdom and teaching to the younger women in the faith. But many of those women on the mother's board are also licensed missionaries and evangelists. And so there's a lot of correlation between those two. So I, I saw that element of, of deep fondness, respect uh, in the church, but also the elements I think that Grace and Chris have mentioned of these service-oriented roles alongside those uh, uh, leadership roles also. Yeah, I found that really interesting because certainly on reflection, looking back, many of the churches I grew up in wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for the women in the church. They were really the backbone and, and you know, the people who ran the church were the women. But it was, and, and figureheaded probably is, is, sounds a bit trite, but it was male leadership, which was predicated upon female and women serving the rest of the church and, uh, and really being that backbone. And I think, yeah, there is really a cultural element there to it, absolutely. Certainly in, in Australia, uh, you had quite a few women in the workforce until after the Second World War. And then uh, as uh, soldiers came home from the war, uh, and as I, I'm pretty sure this happened in the States as well, I think the demographic shift occurs there. Many more women were no longer in the workforce uh, after the war and ended up being in the house and doing, um, I mean, this is where we get the advent of the term housework. But I, I find it really interesting and looking on from Australia is uh, your reflect, reflection, Daniel, that that degree of matriarchy in, in the black community is, is different in, to, to what it looks like from the white community looking on. And I, I guess one of the things with, with this is that it, um, really depends on then what our role models are. To some degree, there is this this nature of you can be who you can see, and this is this is often talked about in, in all sorts of different roles. But I, I know from for many people who start studying at, at theological college here in Australia, uh, and many many um, m- many female ordinands, uh, people who are thinking about ministry and thinking about ordained ministry in the Anglican Church. The refrain I keep hearing is, I never thought that I could be a priest or a preacher or a missionary until I saw someone else who had done it. And I think that's where one of those aspects of you can't conceive of it until you can see it. And therefore, if the only people that you see preaching are males, mm-hmm. uh, if the only way that you see preaching done is in a certain stereotype, be that uh, an exegetical pattern, be it in, in a, a more passionate homiletical pattern, mm-hmm whichever cultural framework you grew up with, it's really hard to break out of that mold. I'm interested in just how, how we conceive of, of the, 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 roles, the role models and the patterns of homiletics and the patterns of ministry that we, we can see. This is why I love at, uh, at our seminary. So my pastor actually teaches homiletics at our seminary. And so I don't know how many seminaries have women teaching preaching, but it's, it's wonderful to know that 
all of our students, the men and the women, are being taught how to preach from a woman, which of course breaks a lot of stereotypes, right? But going back to that issue of you can't be what you can't see, I just love the fact that whether whether the women in the class are planning on being preachers one day, they can at least see it and imagine it, right? So that the imagination is activated through a class like that. Yeah, totally. Like I remember when I came to Biola to do my uh, master's degree and then I met Joanne Jung and it was like the first time that I, I like saw a female Bible professor because I had I was raised in such a conservative culture and that just like gave me a new paradigm of seeing like oh women can be Bible professors they can teach theology can they they can teach the word so I came in as like MA in Christian education because I thought I was going to be in children's ministry because that's like where my church had regulated, had like put me into. They're like, oh, you want to go into ministry? You can be in children's ministry. And then thinking like, I don't know if this is really what I want to do. And then meeting Joanne Jung and, real, and then meeting all these other awesome women at Talbot and seeing like their love for the word. And so I ended up actually switching to MA in Bible exposition and then adding spiritual formation along the way. So, yeah, I just loved like diving deep into the word and realizing like, I really enjoy this. But to be honest, I think because I haven't had very many like models of female preachers, it's still really hard for me personally to see like where I fit, even with my seminary training. So, yeah, I'm sure there's like all this stuff that I personally have to like wrestle with um, if I were to ever become like a female preacher, such as probably like the disapproval of my family who comes from a really conservative background. So yeah, I like, I feel like maybe when I'm 60 and like a lot older and wiser, I could be like a preacher and <laughs> not be as fearful of um, what people think of me. But I think like in my current state, um, it's just really hard to break out of the upbringing and kind of the constraints that have been placed on me, um, sadly to say. But yeah, thankfully, I have a lot of people around me encourage me, like my husband, Stan, and um, people who have, you know, like pushed me to keep on going further in my studies. That's why I'm pursuing a PhD. Like, I don't think I would have ever considered doing this before coming to Talbot or people encouraging me. So I'm grateful. I found it interesting. I was listening to a podcast the other day and Beth Moore was speaking about her own path into ministry and path into preaching. And I quite like Beth uh, and her approach to things and not just because she's from Green Bay and therefore <laughs> she's a cheesehead as well. But also the way that she framed it was that she just wanted to be a faithful teacher of God's word. And if that meant teaching to, to children, if it meant teaching to women, if it meant teaching to adults, uh, she, would, she would just go, run with it and go with it. And interestingly, the, the person who she was chatting with was saying that at his church, uh, there are all these people who wouldn't entertain having a female preacher, but were more than happy to listen to Beth Moore. And, and I, I just wonder, if, I made me wonder, you know, is this another example of the hierarchy uh, that she is, she's tra somehow transcended being female by, the, by virtue of, the, of her ministry that she's had? I, I just find it really interesting. But I think there is an encouragement there uh, that being faithful and being simply keeping on doing ministry and, and let God take, take it where he will. I wonder for the situation between folks liking Beth Moore, but then not necessarily seeing her in, in the role of 
a pastor is because she seems autonomous from like from ecclesiological structure, right? Like in one sense, it's a question of like, is she still viewed in the same framework even as if there was a figure uh, of her likeness, of her skill set and fan base, I guess you could say, that is in some ways kind of a parachurch versus the church. Uh, and uh, it'd be interesting to, to know the framework, like what, what categorization she's placed in. And, and I know it's contentious, unfortunately, you know, that, that she's placed in between a wedge between what is the church and what is ministry that some might say is distinguished from the church. No, I, and I think that's really interesting, uh, Daniel, because I'm, I wonder if she fits into that same sort of category as the returned or visiting missionary. Uh, she's uh, come in from outside of the system. She is, isn't part of the normal structure of the church, and therefore uh, there is a greater leniency, perhaps, or a greater freedom that she has from, from not being uh, an intrinsic part or an authorized part of the church, I guess. And I wonder if there is uh, that structure that it is to play, if she would have the same uh, freedoms, if she was a regular member or an ordained person within the context. Uh, that she was ministering within, and 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 at the same time, I, I give great great praise for people who are coming in from outside of the system, outside of the context, because it does provide those role models uh, that we have from the outside. It provides uh, people with a vision of what can can actually be done, what can actually happen uh, outside of their context. Yeah, totally. I like I like how you said that people from the outside do give do also give us models. Yeah, so people like Beth Moore, you know, I just see her and I'm like, oh, that's super encouraging to see a woman who is faithful to preaching God's word um, wherever she's called. And like, I like what you said, Chris, too, that she just said that she would just wanted to be faithful wherever God placed her. And I think that's all we can do. I think especially as females, um, because we may not have as many opportunities in some of the circles that we are in. I feel like a lot of the times, um, all I can do is just be faithful to where God has placed me in this season or, yeah. So to just take it one step at a time, you know, it's not like Beth Moore was trying to like break all these barriers, you know, it's just, she was being faithful. So I like that. I like seeing it like that too. Yeah. And, and I think having that diversity of voices from the pulpit and, and therefore the role models that, that come in from the outside is actually quite important because one of the things that I hear a bit from students from time to time is that sort of quotes or, or statements like, women don't sound right in the pulpit, or I don't like how, how that sounds. And I, I would hazard a guess, and even, even I would, as someone who marks and has marked in the past homiletics assignments, you kind of go, what are they actually getting at here? I can't figure out what they don't like about things, because from a homiletics point of view, uh, especially if you're marking someone's a sermon or giving people sermon review, you know, that was a great sermon. And then some, someone else's sermon was terrible from an academic perspective. They didn't ha- handle scripture well. They really didn't ha- know what they were trying to say and things like that. But for some reason, a female voice sounded weird to them. And, and I wonder if part of this is because we don't necessarily have good role models, not just in preaching. I mean, we don't have a range of role models in preaching, but we don't necessarily have good frameworks or good role models for public speaking in general. I was talking to someone this morning who was saying at their seminary, they're so struggling for examples of preaching or examples of public speaking anyway, 
that one of the homileticians was uh, telling some of the students to go listen to Trump rallies because at least then there is some form of some form of engagement with public discourse over you know forty minutes, one hour that gets people involved. And 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 my response to this was. Yeah, are we telling our students to go listen to, to Hitler Youth rallies as well, or, or, or songs about uh, cookies not having any eggs in them, uh, courtesy of uh, '90s metal bands? Because the the way that we model and the way that in the church we have adopted our discourse or our rhetoric of preaching, our models of preaching, are actually so often intertwined with our public speaking and, and what what happens in the public square, and so. I, I always remember, I can't remember which book, I, but I remember the quote, but the book recommended for young preachers, go listen to comedians because comedians can command the, the attention of an audience for 40 minutes. At the same time, how many preachers do you want in, in the pulpit telling jokes all the time? Is that really appropriate way to go? And so I, I wonder sometimes how much of this is because we have, we have such a narrow, limited scope of the role models that we have in the pulpit. Mm-hmm. And you know, that point about uh, comedians is really interesting. I'm just going to skip the whole Trump thing because I certainly don't want any of our preachers imitating Trump. But the point about comedians is quite interesting because I've heard plenty of people say that women comedians aren't as funny as male comedians. And so there's also this kind of like sexism about female comedians. So this idea that, you know, we should go to our comedians, well, might that just reinforce these gendered stereotypes about public speaking? Yeah. And I, I wonder, I'd be, I'd love to hear your, your reflections on this, Grace. Um, and I, I'm not a big one for comedy in terms of stand-up comedy and things like that. But here in Australia, we have a long tradition of comedians. Um, and one of them is um, a female comedian called Hannah Gadsby. Uh, and she had, I think it was on Netflix. Uh, she had a um, comic show called Nanette, uh, which was sort of came from her fame as a comedian, but is really a, an exploration of what it means to be marginalized in, in culture, what it means to be on the outside and, in, and traumatized by, by culture. Uh, and she's speaking as a lesbian and a non-gender conforming woman. But one of the big parts of this is that it actually upset the whole com- comedy scene here in Australia, uh, not just as a woman speaking, but as a woman who was being very blunt about her challenges in comedy to the point that other comedians criticized this as being, quote, not funny. And it, because it broke the paradigm of what comedy looks like. And so I wonder sometimes if, if what this is doing is that it's the it's breaking, breaking through paradigms. And so we don't necessarily have categories to be able to put them in. And so we struggle with what it means to, to what is this comedy? Is this not comedy? Is this preaching? Is this not preaching? I, I wonder if that thought regarding women comedians not being as funny as their male counterparts is in some ways deeply embedded in kind of the patriarchal mindset that men get to define what is quality, right? And, and what the framework is to measure up to that, right? Because when you don't necessarily have women represented at the table of definition and like quality assurance, we could say, then their perspectives are never seen as equal qualifiers, right? And, and so I think that that's a fundamental fracture in the model itself. Um, it's like a group of conservative white evangelicals stating how to speak contextually to a urban African-American context and saying, you don't preach black enough. The question would be is, 
one, what is preaching black? Two, why is that preaching such a distinguisher that you, you say that you can qualify it? And three, you're white. <laughs> so I'll just be, be honest, right? So I, so I think we have to have, have that context, right? It's, it's, not a, it's not an inferiority or a superiority element, but it's, it's the reality of the context in which we live in uh, shape a lot of ways the, the qualities that we define as, as, as good. And so I think that that element of like maleness being the level of, of good quality transforms to males possibly thinking that they have the right to define what is good without any perspective um, from their female counterparts. Yeah, that's a great point, Daniel. And just expanding on that, even like seeing like women in leadership and like the leadership qualities that people admire. A lot of times it's like the leadership qualities that are admired in men, like confidence or just being very assertive and like being ambitious. Like even those, those are like great or people look up to those qualities in men. Once a female exhibits those qualities, it's they're, they're seen and looked down upon, you know, they're seeing as being like too assertive, like domineering, like it's like these traits that are supposed to be positive actually become negative. So for females, honestly, it's like a lose-lose situation mm-hmm. for us, like all of these scenarios. Kamala Harris is a great example of what you just described. Yes, exactly. I find, I find it really interesting you've mentioned Kamala because the, just the, that pattern of needing role models to see other role models take place. Uh, so you've got Rosa Parks sitting on a bus, uh, which meant that other children could go to school, uh, which meant that children were, were slowly reintegrated, and which meant, uh, has eventually come to this point that Kamala Harris can be uh, VP-elect. But without the role models and without the people who are coming in from outside of the system to, to disrupt the system, none of these things would have happened. Or they may have happened, but it would have taken a lot, lot longer. And so I wonder uh, sometimes about that pattern of change from the outside and the, and the role models that are, that are there. Chris, I like, you, I like that you brought up the bus situation because Kamala mentions that about the busing system was like the turning point for her, right? And it's like, you know, like desegregation, all, all, all those elements. Yeah, that, that's, that's good. Yeah, so one of the things I think that has really come out for us in this part has just been that, that nature of role models. And I mean, if we're not looking, going to look to comedians, if we're not going to be looking to our political system, if we're not going to be looking to other areas of society for our role models, I wonder sometimes where we're going to draw role models from, where we're going to draw the patterns uh, to inspire uh, young women, uh, young girls to be, to be preachers, uh, to be engaged in homiletics in, in whatever variety of, of means that God is calling them to be that in big church, small church, wherever they're called to be faithful. So, uh, yeah, so I remember a friend of mine gave a really interesting paper a while ago on trauma. And one of the places that she talked about uh, as being an inspiration was just the nature of biblical role models of uh, people in the biblical uh, narratives standing up to the trauma that they had received. Be that JL, who is probably traumatized by her complicity and her husband's complicity in, in war, uh, standing up to that trauma, uh, be that Ruth uh, in that same situation. Esther, of course, in a situation which is, you know, she's part of a harem. She's not particularly 
it's not it's not a romance novel as much as our kids' Bible puts into that. Uh, but these are these are great role models uh, for people uh, and for women in the church. I, I wonder if sometimes we we need to be going back there for for the places that we find our role models. Uh, Grace, I'm just interested in in your reflections on this as a woman. Uh, so certainly, as a as a man, I find interesting in and and I can see the role models there, but. Does this work as well from a, a, woman, a woman's perspective? Yeah, totally. Um, Chris, thanks for bringing that up. I think, yeah, throughout scripture, we do see um, so many examples of women who are um, empowered to minister and to preach or do the work that God has called them to. And I think that's just super encouraging. Um, you had mentioned some like Old Testament examples of Jael and Ruth and Esther. Um, I'm also thinking of you know, like Mary Magdalene, who was like the first evangelist, you know, he, she was the one who testified of the empty tomb. Um, and so it's just amazing to see that. And um, I'm thinking of like Lydia, who um, like led a church in her house, you know, and so there's just so many um, ways that God empowered women throughout scripture. And I think that is really just an encouragement to me to be faithful with the gifts that he's given me as well and to follow um, what he's called me to do. And um, that can be just an encouragement for, um, yeah, women everywhere that the things that maybe that we grew up with or the stereotypes that are against us that are like culturally may feel like it hinders some of that, like some of our own value. I think God He's the one who shows us how truly valuable we are as women and how um, our voice is important and how, yeah, we need to be faithful to that. Grace, I think those are, those are such validating statements about how scripture demonstrates that God uh, moves irrespective of gender and, and how the spirit empowers um, whether, you know, whether uh, one is anointed to teach or preach. But there's this empowerment that this, the, the biblical narrative shows. And I think you so highlighted that well. I think this is a great place for us to end this wonderful conversation. And I think on that point, I wonder if, what if instead of going to 1 Corinthians 14 or 1 Corinthians 11 to sort of center this conversation, what if we went to 1 Corinthians 12 to center this conversation and thought about the gifts of the Spirit and how he calls us uniquely for various occupations and purposes? And so very much appreciate having you all on today. Thanks, John. It's been a great conversation and lots of fun. Thank you, John, Chris, Grace. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you. Thanks. This was fun. If you'd like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the two cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.